My new Kickstarter for the book Forge of Foes is launching this Wednesday. We're going to talk about the Arcana of the Ancients Bundle of Holding. My friends Teos and Sean are talking all about Shadow of the Demon Lord on their show on Mastering Dungeons. There is a new 1D&D playtest that just came out. And we're going to take a look at the Iskandar Player's Handbook for 5e from MT Black. This along with more questions from the February 2023 Patreon Q&A all today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things in RPGs. This work, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want access to the City of Arches sourcebook, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, a bunch of exclusive adventures, a dedicated Discord channel, previews of upcoming products, and you want to help me put on shows like this, you can do so by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. There is a link to become a patron down in the show notes below. And to the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your support. Scott Fitzgerald Gray, Teos Abadia, and myself are working on a new awesome book called The Lazy DM's Forge of Foes. This is the fourth of the Lazy DM's guides. This one specifically focused on monsters. Instead of giving you a book of monsters, we're giving you a guide to help you build, customize, change, run and think about the monsters that you're using in your 5e fantasy rpgs it's going to be a fantastic book on wednesday you'll be able to look at the 29 page free preview to see if it's the kind of book you're interested in the feedback that we've gotten patrons of sly flourish have already had access to the preview they've already seen it and so far the feedback has been really good we're very excited about this book i'm i'm very sure you're going to enjoy it too so keep an eye out on wednesday march 1 down in the show notes below is a link to be notified when the kickstarter goes live so you can jump right on take a look at that preview look at it recognize how awesome it is and then back it and become become a backer of the product so we've been working on it for a year it's really cool if you want to see more about it last week i put out a whole video where i walk through the entire preview so you can see everything about it but the kickstarter is launching this week so keep an eye out it's going to be great over on the bundle of holding, there is a big collection of products. It's a lot of the 5e products that Monty Cook Games has put out. So this is Arcana of the Ancients, Beneath the Monolith, Beasts of Flesh and Steel, Where the Machines Wait, and Jade Colossus. A collection of five different Monty Cook Games books that are built around the fifth edition of, uh, built around fifth edition and you can pick up all of it for $18 that's five pdfs each of these are the 20 25 range normally you can pick up the entire collection for 18 bucks i've done spotlights on these products before i like them very much they're really really good beautiful artwork really cool ideas a lot of it i was able to take and immediately drop right into my eberron game i was running my eberron game at the time so if you want to see more look at my eberron games particularly like one region where it was like constructs gone wild and i brought in a lot of the stuff from both arcana of the ancient and where the machines wait i will warn that some of the design some of the, de the the design of the fifth edition mechanics that are in here are a little are a little shaky you're going to want to look at them before you immediately throw them out there i didn't really have that trouble with the monsters the monsters for the most part ran pretty well every so often they'd have something a little weird some of the rewards that you'd give particularly permanent magic items be a little careful there were things like a permanent magic item that would give you advantage on all attacks forever and it's like that's not really how advantage is supposed to work so there are definitely some little mechanically bits that are, that you have to work with, but a lot of the rest of it, the lore, the ideas behind the monsters, the adventures themselves, really cool stuff. So I definitely think it's 18 bucks. I would have, I already own all of these books. If I hadn't, this is a fantastic time to pick these up. So that is the Arcana of the Ancients Bundle of Holding. You can find a link to that down in the show notos below. My friends, Teos Abadia and Sean Merwin have a show called Mastering Dungeons. It's now available both on YouTube and as a podcast. I'll have links to both of them down in the show notes below. And 
And in their most recent episode, they do a deep dive of Shadow of the Demon Lord, the role-playing game by Robert Schwab. I am a huge fan of this role-playing game. I've played it many times. I've played a campaign in it. I've done, I've talked about it on this show, but it's really great to hear Sean and Teos dive deep into it. They spend most of their episode diving deep into it to see how things go. It's really, really cool. So I would definitely, I would definitely check it out. It's going to be, it's going to be great. It's a, it's a really good episode. It covers a lot of material that's going on there. I really, really like it. We have our first play test after the whole OGL craziness that has gone on over the past couple of months. It's the first time that Wizards of the Coast has released a new play test. And we have a new play test that is covering the Druid and the Paladin. So I thought we'd take a look at it today. I something that's important to recognize when I look at a playtest like this is I'm I I'm not a detail oriented guy. I also don't tend to focus on character options that much. I'm I focus on them like how they're going to relate to me as a as a as a DM more so than kind of how players feel about this. So and and that's fine because I don't I don't need to represent players and certainly players are going to have their opinions on it and are going to talk about it. There's clearly one thing that has been a great big view on this. So we'll certainly talk a little about this because I think my opinion is different than many. But yeah, so they cover the druid and they cover the paladin. They added some extra feats. There's little touches on spells. One of the things that that I think is missed is which spells they're not changing, right? Which spells they didn't bring up. Does that mean those spells are not going to be changing? Because I think there are definitely some spells that have been problems that I've run into and I don't see them getting fixed. And that bothers me because it's like, this is the one chance in 10 years that you're going to have to fix this stuff. And is it going to be fixed or it's not going to be fixed? Now, it doesn't matter that much. It is interesting to me, and we're going to talk about this as well when we do the spotlight on Empty Black's, on Empty Black's book, of how I feel about a playtest like this now compared to how I felt about it like last year. And the difference is I now see that there are multiple new 5e versions coming out. So I put a little less emphasis on making sure that wizards does it right because i have other options and my and some of my other options might be i just house rule it myself and decide what i want to pick i'm a little less worried about what they're going to do with this because i don't feel like it's the end all be all of D&D. It's the end-all be-all of all of 5e, because now 5e, we have lots of different versions of 5e and lots of different ideas, and we can house rule a lot of that stuff. And I think we should. I think it's I think I think we should lean in. The idea, I think we definitely need to break past the idea that Wizards of the Coast's material is canon and everything else is a modification. I think all of these are different variants that we can choose from. And I, we've seen Wizards of the Coast say this. The idea that the default stuff is what's in D&D Beyond, we need, to get, we need to get past that, right? We need to really break past the idea that, the, the, that whatever's in D&D Beyond is fine and anything that's not in D&D Beyond we shouldn't be using. Because we've seen lots of weird-ass stuff that gets published. And I don't even think it's the intent. If you read the beginnings of these books, they're like, these are optional rules that the GM can, can choose to bring in or not. So what I mean is we need to think differently about I'm trying to think differently about it because right now I think the main thing that Wizards of the Coast can do that no one else can do is put a D&D starter set in Target to get new people into the game and make movies or, or promote brand other materials, brand Hot Pockets or brand whatever to get people into the hobby. That's really what I think their role is. That's very, very important. Making great books. Sure. I want them to make great books. I want everybody to make great books. So yeah, I think, I think that's definitely, I think that's definitely something that we should. So Druid and Paladin. 
So what's new? They made a new Druin class and they made a new Circle of the Moon because they're making definite differences to Circle of the Moon. We have a lot of their same stuff. Why don't we just get right into it? What's the main thing that everybody's been talking about? And the main thing that everybody's been talking about with all of this, I think, that I've been focusing on is the new beast the new, the new shape-shifting things. So they essentially have now new wild shapes. And instead of saying like, here's one of 38 stat blocks that you have to pick from, they say, here are three kinds, land, sea, and sky. And you don't even get access to the sea and sky until your, until your later level, which means you have land. And land has a couple of different options, but generally speaking, it's a generic stat block for an animal thing. And the stat block changes as you go. Now, the big thing that that came up with it, I think there's a few big things. One of the big arguments is this is so much more boring than when you could pick animals before. I kind of push back on that because I know a lot of moon druids who always pick the brown bear. And they didn't pick the brown bear because they want to be a brown bear. They picked the brown bear because it had a lot of hit points and it could hit really hard. So we were, in my opinion, there wasn't this idea of like, oh, you have all these stat blocks. It was like, yeah, but you don't want to waste a wild shape on just you know, one of the other ones, it was like, well, why ever pick the saber tooth tiger over the brown bear? It was like, well, the brown bear is just better, right? And so when you had those different stat blocks, there were some that were just better. I, this is something that I feel strongly about. I don't think it's, a, I feel strongly about like static monster damage, right? And I know that's not popular. I feel strongly about this too. And I don't know that it's popular, which is, this isn't a single boring stat block. This is all of the animals you ever wanted to be. Did you want to be an owlbear? You're an owlbear. You use this stat block, but you're an owlbear. Not every story-focused thing has to have mechanics to define it. You get to decide what it is. Think about spirit weapon. Think about spiritual guardians, right? These spells. Those spells, and it's weird that everybody describes fireball the same way, but spirit weapon and spirit guardian, suddenly there's a lot of creativity in what those things look like and how they operate. That same that same approach can be taken to stuff like this, which is you don't need to have, if you want to be a spider, you don't need to have all spidery stuff. You can just use the animal of the land stat block and call it a spider, right? That that works. The real advantage of having stat blocks like this is a, they're not, you don't have this weird ass spiky imbalance of moon druids where some, most of the time they suck, but at a few levels are really, really good. Like at third level, you're really, really good. But at, but at a lower level, you're not, you know, or at these other levels where the CR breaks down, it doesn't, you're, suddenly you're not really very good. So this one, at least it's scaling correctly. It scales up, it scales up correctly. It scale, your armor class scales up. That's nice, right? That's, that's not nothing. So, you know, so, so there's, there's definitely this, like you get to call it whatever you want and you get to be whatever you want. There is a criticism I think is valid, which is, yeah, except it would be nice if there were some tag-on abilities. The idea is like, well, a spider should be able to do it. Like this one has a climb speed, which means you could be a big cat. It means you could be, and bears can climb. It means you get a spider. So whatever you have, you have a climb speed, which is kind of like a spider. It would be kind of nice if maybe you could tag on, you know, one of a handful of other optional things that kind of better define the monster you have. And I think a lot of people have brought up the solution. I think a lot of people are going to recommend it. And I wouldn't be surprised if that they add something like that. That, yeah, you can be animal, land, sea, and air. And then here's three different tag-on abilities that you can pick from. That And you still define what the monster type is, but it might be something like, oh, I don't know what it'd be, like a web or a charge attack, or I don't even know what they would be. I'm not going to define them. But the idea that maybe you could tailor these things a little bit better to, to fit the monster you want would be better than, and it certainly breaks away from the idea of you need to have 72 different stat blocks, but you're only going to pick the brown bear because everybody likes the brown bear. 
So that that's definitely the biggest complaint I think that came from this. I I think they're going to get a ton of feedback, and I would be very surprised if they changed it. But yeah, so since Tasha's, there's definitely been this idea of like let's give you a template for a monster for like a familiar or for a summoned animal or now for a shape change and use those instead of trying to use a monster manual stat block. I think that's a far better approach. I think it gives you a lot of more customization. I think it helps with balance overall. I think that's pretty great. The only other part that I think chaps people's asses is that the you you use your hit points you use your hit points and hit dice and immediately this is this has caused issues at 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 this the sly flourish home because my wife certainly liked having a having a moon druid with lots of extra hit points i'm like well why should any why why should any one class get 130 temporary hit points or seven you know 52 temporary hit points i do think it would not be out of hand for circle of the moon as a subclass that when they wild shape, you actually get some temporary hit points too. I don't know how many, one per level, two per level, give a pile of temporary hit points. That makes sense. If you, if you still want Circle of the Moon to fill in that role as sort of a tanky thing where you know you can turn into a big bear, you can turn into a werewolf, you can turn into these big monsters. If you want to make them a little bit more tanky, throw some extra hit points on them. I still think it's better that they don't have their own hit points and then you revert to yours when you drop. I think it would be better to just give a hit point bump. And I and the way I would balance it is temps. I would say you get a big pile of temporary hit points. And that way you don't have to worry about like getting them back or you, you know, can you heal through them? No, they're temporary hit points or they're gone. And maybe it's two per level, right? So you get you get a, a, a bunch of, you know, a handful of temporary hit points that goes up three per level. I don't know. Pick a, pick a number hit points that we think makes sense. I really didn't dive in too deep into the other ones other than that. I do know that the idea that you couldn't play a tiny monster, tiny critter until 11th level, that didn't make any sense. Because you, I think now you can be a tiny critter. You can be a cat, right? You can shift, you can shape change into a cat at like second level. So I don't know why that was a big deal. I don't know why tiny is one big, you know, be a, be a, being a bigger creature would make sense. But it's weird that you can fly before you can be small. That's weird. So I have a feeling that that is that that that's going to be one too. Paladins. I dug in a little bit looking at paladins. The only thing I thought was interesting, and boy, I hope they do this with monks, is that you can only smite once per turn. That's a big bonus because that one of the things that paladins did that I thought never really sat well with me was the idea that they could just smite and smite and smite if you haste them they can smite three times around plus their bonus action smite and you're just smiting all day long and they're just burning spells so they were one of the biggest nuke classes that exist in D&D that might be the biggest one I think they can do the most single target damage in one round of any any of the classes I could be wrong and I'm sure there's some weird ass builds that can do it but I I think it's it, it feels far more balanced that you can only smite once per turn. And then you can now smite on ranged attacks, which is interesting. And I'm not sure I'm crazy about that because it breaks away from the idea of the paladin and the big armor with the big sword doing smites. And instead it's like, oh, I'm the light paladin. I run in the back with my leather armor and I fire a bow, but he, my bow does 96 points of radiant damage. Eh, I, I, I think I would lean towards making it be a melee attack. I know it, it, it kind of pigeonholes paladins a little bit but it also helps with dipping so like if you're like a rogue but you're going to dip into paladins so that you can stack smites on top of on top of sneak attack and all kinds of stuff i don't know i would i would be i would be happier i would certainly be happier with the with the idea that smites take place off melee attacks that would feel that would feel better to me but i definitely like the idea that you can only do it once per turn most of the times you really shouldn't be doing it more than once a turn now they just need to do that with a monk stunning strike and i almost want a house rule that like a stunning strike can only be done once per turn you can't go up and spam stunning strike because that's just that's just bad that's just that's just mean 
I don't recall seeing anything else. Oh, so I did talk about like, well, what spells are they not changing, right? We're only seeing the spells that they're changing and they have their big lists. An example is they didn't make any changes to the spell Circle of Power. And Circle of Power is one of these weird ones where a paladin that uses Circle of Power and has their aura can create this incredibly powerful this incredibly powerful combination that affects all of the other characters and for many, many high-level monsters removes their difficulty whatsoever because you have advantage on saving throws a lot of the time. And when you get hit, you take zero damage instead of half damage. And that is one that just feels a little strong to me. It's one of these, like it's really only affects high-level high-level paladins because it is fifth level and you you don't get fifth level spells as a paladin until when. Like, you don't get it till 17th level. So it's pretty far up. And maybe at 17th level, you're like, it's okay. But it takes away so many. Like, an ancient red dragon becomes much easier to beat when you have that ability. And you want something like that. You want something that's really strong. But, like, when you when you stack on the aura of protection and that, it builds this really, really, really hard to beat combination and that one character class can do alone and i know when we were play testing like the high level high level layers and fantastic layers we had to account for that specifically it's like if you had that you had to tremendously increase the challenge in order to be able to challenge these characters if they didn't have that you had to way weaken things because you'd wipe people out too easily so i felt like that was too much power packed into too small a too small a set of options and, uh, and it looks, I mean, it's hard to tell. Like, does that mean they're not doing anything with it because it didn't show up in the spells? I don't know. But it's something I'm going to mention. It's the same way I felt about Hero's Feast. Hero's Feast is another spell that I think has a major problem of removing monster, a significant amount of monster challenge once a character can cast it. And I, I feel like it's a very easy fix. Level up 5e already has the fix in place. It would be really cool to see that fix make its way in. But, but Hero's Feast was not one of the spells that they put out in the playtest. Does that mean they're going to fix it? I mean, they're not going to fix it? Are they just going to leave it the way it is? I don't really know. So it's hard, it's hard to tell. So in my big reading of like what other people's comments were about this, I didn't really read much more other than this stuff about the wild shape thing for druids so if you've if you saw other things in here you thought were a big deal that i missed then feel free to feel free to leave a comment and let me know what else you missed so one thing that is not in this but they talked about in the video is that it looks like after a second round of feedback on the ardling that they're going to take the ardling out and that's you know i mean the feedback they got is the feedback they got but i'll tell you i liked the ardling and my players like the ardling like we had players i have two players that are playing ardlings in our game, we have a playtest game that we're playing. We're running Light of Zaraxis, and we're using the playtest rules for that. And th- I mean, that's one where we're going to fork because I'm not going to make them change their character. They already had to change their Ardlings around between the playtests, and now they're gone. I really felt like the Ardling was a was a good character race. And the reason why is that I think having an anthropomorphic animal race that can do all of the animals is a really powerful feature. And I do wonder, like... Who's giving the playtest feedback? And and is it the people you actually think are going to be the people coming into this game or not? Because you look at anime, you look at n- new kind of approaches, and the idea of animal folk as a as a character race is not out of hand. So I think I think that that is a problem. And I hope that they can still, I don't know if they'll find a way in. I'm going to give them the feedback that why not put something like that in? Because I don't think it was that out of hand. If you don't like it, don't, don't use it. But I thought that having some kind of race that could sort of cover all of the different po- possibilities for anthropomorphic animals was a really powerful 
really powerful species. And I'm sad that they got rid of it, right? I, I don't think, and I wonder like, is that in the long run gonna hurt the adaptability of this game? Gonna hurt the adoption of this game? Because there are a lot of new players that in new fiction kind of like that trope. And now they, they, they had like a one species trope that could handle all of them and now they can't handle it at all. And now you're like, no, dwarf. You can play a dwarf. Damn it. So, yeah. So I'm a little sad to see that that might go. And I'm surprised. I'm, I'm, I, I guess they really felt like they didn't nail it either time. And if you got that much feedback. But I do question, like, are you trying to make a game focused on current players? Or are you trying to make a game that's going to bring in new players? And I hope that they're going to aim for new players. And I would feel, I don't know anything. I don't have any data on this. I would feel like having an anthropomorphic race having an anthropomorphic species would be a way to bring people in because there's, it's so popular in a particularly non-Western fantasy. So why not expand a little bit? So I don't know. I, I feel like, you know, I, I feel like that was throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It doesn't look like they've changed the influence actions since the last playtest. I wasn't, obviously two playtests back, I looked at it and I really didn't like it because I felt like you were taking the entire action out of the hands of the GM to determine anything. I'm still not crazy about it. I still feel like this is creating this interaction where a player can feel like they have the right to influence anybody at any time for any reason and all they have to do is beat a DC 15 and that person has to do what they want. And I know it says like, well, it it can't be something that's, uh, again, against their alignment or otherwise repugnant to the creature, but that's really fuzzy. And it just feels like everybody gets charm person now. And I, I, I kind of don't dig it. So I, I feel like there needs to be an element in here. I'll probably put this in my feedback. I feel like there needs to be an element in here that says like, you know, with the GM, if it makes sense, like if it makes sense, if the GM determines it makes sense for the situation, you know, and, and it, it feels like if you're going to play by the rules, the idea is, no, the GM doesn't get to determine that. The player gets to determine if they're going to influence anybody. And all you have to do is beat a DC 15. The other one is setting the DC is instead of the minimum DC to the check is 15 or the creature's intelligence, I don't ever get to decide if the situation makes that DC higher. Why would I, why would I, shouldn't the circumstances, like everything else in the game, the, the circumstances determine what DC you pick. I don't, I don't kind of dig this idea that like there's this default DC for, for this particular action. You know, it feels weird to me. It's the same way with stealth. It's like if you're trying to detect a hidden creature, instead of rolling against the creature's stealth, it's like you roll a DC 15 check. It's, I don't know, that whole that whole thing is kind of strange. I don't think they've changed it. I think I'm still just mad about it because it's now been so long. I don't remember what it said last time and now I see it again, I'm still mad. But I don't, I don't, really, I don't really dig that, that influence thing. And I think it's leaning the game towards a, an area of like, oh, the DM can go play PlayStation while you guys just roll your own DCs because you don't need me to figure out what, you know, why, why am I there? So I think that, I think that, you know, there needs to be some DM, like, look, when it, you know, when the DM determines that influencing makes sense, you can do this thing. And again, I'll probably just have to have the house rule it. Like if I have players who are like, I'm going to use it like charm person. I already have trouble with charm person, right? But it, this feels like charm person to me, right? This feels like you everybody now has this access to, 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 to charm person. It really doesn't feel that different to me. So I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm still not a fan. So we've been looking at different people, different groups that have been coming out with new fifth edition books, particularly with the Creative Commons license out and with people kind of, you know, going their own directions with 5e, where 5e is sort of a core platform that's no longer held by Wizards of the Coast, but is now in the Creative Commons. We now have lots of different groups that are starting to take the 5e base system and build their own versions of it. We talked about Black Flag, I think last week or the week before. I think we talked about Black Flag last week. I've talked about Fate Forge, a whole different system that's based 
based on 5e. I talked about level up advanced 5e a lot. So here is an interesting one. Black, a very prolific publisher of fifth edition products, cre has created his own sort of mini setting slash city source book called Iskandar. I've previewed it on the show before. Iskandar is really, really cool. And he put out something the other day that I was like, wow, this is a really interesting idea. He created a player's handbook for Iskandar that's 572 pages that takes the entire fifth edition SRD, the, the, the entire fifth edition system resource document rules, moved it into this book, and created a dedicated player's handbook for this particular system built off of 5e. So instead of saying you need your own player's handbook and here are some modifications, here's some new subclasses, here's some new backgrounds that are tied to it. He said, why not create a player's handbook that has everything in it? And that's that's pretty interesting. So he, he created a whole new set of ancestries. Again, the, the single contained volume that has the the Backrog, the Fiendspawn, Forgerite, Goblins, Humans, Jotunkin, Kith, Minotaur, Roga, Varger, Vatborn, and Villa. He has new various paths for all of the classes. He has new backgrounds that he's created and a bunch of new feats. Now, he actually brought this. So he is not using the Creative Commons to do this. He is using the original open gaming license, the OGL 10A. And he's reaching out to lots of other systems that have used the OGL 10A so he can bring that material into this and build this 572 page book that's got a focus on it. It has a lot of like breakout boxes that they offer suggestions to players and to dms on like how to use this stuff he's got a whole thing about names so what you would expect from a player's book now he uses a format that actually is pretty mobile friendly it's a the reason it's 572 pages is because the text is very big it's one column it's designed so that you could probably you know it's probably a little stretch to read it on a phone but you could definitely read it on a small tablet pretty easily and yeah, so it's the entire book. What I found really interesting about this though, so that idea, I really love the idea of like, if you have your own setting and your own world with your own backgrounds, instead of just writing it and saying, well, use the traditional 5e SRD or, or use the traditional 5e rulebook or the player's handbook. And here's a bunch of other stuff, which makes sense because lots of people have the player's handbook and stuff like that. You could actually just take the 5e rules and build your own player's handbook that has everything in it. That's still fully 5e compatible, but the whole thing is tailored around your game. And now it's self-contained. That's a really interesting idea. But here's the thing that I thought was, was really fascinating about this. What I found really fascinating about this is he's selling it for $4. So you have an entire player's handbook ready to play for Iskandar with all of the stuff from the 5 VSRD, plus a whole bunch of material taken from a bunch of different sources all into the OGL, formatted and focused on his world for 4 bucks. So it's like, if you want to play Iskandar with your players, instead of saying like, hey, you got to go buy a player's book, but it's going to cost you $25, you can just go ahead and spring the $4 for every one of your players and send them their own copy of this PDF and they have it. So it's priced so low that it's really easy to get this entire player's guide into the hands of everybody all at once and you have everything you need. That's that's pretty amazing, right? That's a really powerful idea. And he can get away with this. He can do that because so much of the material was available from other sources already. He had to bring it in. He had to kind of curate it and make sure that it had the right stuff that fit his setting. He needed to format it, make sure it was in there. He added all of the breakout boxes and everything else. But he still created this very low price player's guide that's fully self-contained. And I don't know, I, there's there's something about it. Like, as I think about that, I'm like, that that's kind of a, a very different angle on how 
role-playing game products are sold. And I think it's a good one because one of the things I've had a lot of trouble with as I've been stretching out to other role-playing games, for one, but also other variants of 5e, is that getting the guides to the players so that they can look at it and use it and study it can get very expensive. One of the Patreon questions we're going to talk to today, I'm pretty sure, talks about how it's very expensive to, it's very hard to get these player guides in front of people. Monty Cook Games created a player's guide to Tolis, which is a good size book. It's thirty a 32-page book that tells you all about Tolis and has different options and stuff like that. They give it away for free, which means you can just get it to your players and go. An example where this is difficult is in Midgard. When I wanted to run a Midgard game, I'm running Empire of the Ghouls, I'm running Scarlet Citadel, and I wanted to use Midgard options. For me to get those new character options in the hands of the players, it's expensive. They're like $30, $40, even for the PDFs. They can be pretty costly. So to tell all my players, you have to spend you know somewhere between $30 and $70 to have all these options I'm making available, that's really not, like you know especially for one campaign, that's not really something that... That, that people are going to be really eager for. So finding ways to create really low cost player options and then figuring out how to get your money somewhere else. I don't know, you know, I don't have a perfect solution to it, but I think that that really works. Like get, try to, try to make it easy to bring players in who are not going to invest 70 bucks in, in books from a publisher that they're not familiar with for a setting they're not even sure about yet. They don't know how long the campaign is going to go on and they're going to have to invest a lot of money. So that, that idea of trying to, you know, of, of making a player's guide, this, this is Kendar player's guide and making a 500 page player's guide that's got everything you need to build characters, all the material that you need and make it $4 is pretty profound. Now, so how, but I, I do think that if you are going to have a setting again, like Tolis, I don't think you need to include the entire 5e SRD in your player's guide if you don't want to, because you can get those player's guides everywhere else. Most of the time you can expect that if people have been playing 5e, they have a player's handbook. The tricky bit is that like, if they're only using beyond that, that could be a problem. And that having everything in one guide could be, could be pretty useful. So I, I don't think that necessarily every new world that anybody publishes needs to have its own entire full version of the rule set in there. I think that that ends up wasting a fair bit of time in page space and other things. But I'm not sure. I don't know how I feel about that. But I thought that this was a, a pretty profound idea. And it's pretty neat. If you want to check it out, there'll be a link down in the show notes below. You can pick up the Iskandar Players Handbook for 5e. Very cool stuff. I didn't I didn't pour over the whole thing. It's 572 pages. Who's got, who's got that kind of time? But I did look through it. And I was like, this is a really neat idea. You have full 20th level, all the character races. It's got, you know, Path of the Bear Shirt. That's kind of fun, right? A whole bunch of different paths and, and taken from a lot of different sources too. So looking at, you can see the list of different resources that this guide had taken, that it, it, it's using the 5.1 SRD. It's also using Level Up. It's using Pathfinder, Deep Magic, Toma Heroes, the Zobek Gazetteer, Grim Hollow, Primeval Thule, Tolis, Total Party Kill Bestiary. Like he is hitting a lot of different sources, all that have released their information under OGL. It's interesting that we're looking at how what the OGL did differently now than we are a couple months ago. And now we're making more use of it than we, than we did before. So that's pretty, that's pretty interesting, but very neat to have all of this stuff sort of included in, in this one book. So check it out. You can find a show note, find a link in the show notes below. That is the Iskandar players handbook for five E let's do some Patreon questions every month. 
on the Sly Flourish Patreon. I post a thread. You can ask any RPG-related question on that thread. I will answer it there on Patreon. Some of them I take and I bring into shows like this. Other ones sometimes become articles or other videos of their own. Mark E. says, My question is, ideas of co-DMing with my group. We are about to finish a a long two-plus-year campaign where I've had the privileges of DMing a group of the privilege, the privilege of DMing a group of eight players from level one to 20. That's awesome. Eight players at 20th level. Ooh, it has been a wonderful time, but it's also been a lot of work. Yeah, we are planning to on continuing playing together with the Dragonland series, but I've shared that I can't DM such a large group again. That makes sense. We have decided that we are, we would like to try two groups with me as DMing one group for three to five players and another player DMing another group of three to five players. We're planning to still play together at the same time and do the same campaign. Do you have any resources and thoughts about how to do this well? Yes, your your drive, you're 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 gonna be pulled towards some ideas that you might be better just left aside. You might have an idea to build a shared world where the two groups are operating in the same world and the effects of one of them can affect the other. That's really complicated to do. It's really hard to coordinate it. And I probably wouldn't recommend it. As a lazy, as one lazy DM to another, I would not recommend doing that because the amount of extra work on top of having to prep your own game anyway, where you'd have to figure out how things are changing based on what the other group is doing. It sounds really cool. It sounds like it'd be awesome. I could tell you it's really hard to do and it's really hard to do over a long term so first i probably wouldn't do that second i wouldn't worry about coordinating the two groups so carefully that they're always at the same place at the same time to to make sure that players could jump from group to group you could do that it'd be a little bit like adventurers league but i think you're going to handcuff yourself into making sure that every group is sort of railroading down the same point to make sure that they're always running at the same spot I think best and what would be still be a lot of fun is just let the two groups run the same campaign at the same time, the same way and see how they change and see. I think a lot of times the fun of getting together with other players and talking about your experiences is hearing about how things were different in a, in a similar campaign. I hear it with AL all the time. Adventures league guys like to talk about how one person did it one way and another person did it. And wasn't that interesting. So I think that there is, there are very cool ways to be able to, to, to do that. And I would avoid, so those are most of the things I would avoid. I would avoid trying to do a shared world. I would avoid trying to make sure that you're staying on the same timeline. I would I would have two groups. I think it's great. Two groups, two DMs, same time running the same campaign and then enjoy how things are different. And then certainly the DMs can collaborate and get ideas from one another. I'm like, oh, this worked really well for me. That worked really well for another. But I would avoid, I would just run them. Right, just just enjoy and run them. I would probably try to find another player to fill out your other group. You could go up to five players per group, so now you got a little bit of room. You have room for three more players. I wouldn't go probably higher than five, maybe six. You could probably go to six, but then I would definitely do the thing of like don't don't have any more, don't have any more players than 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 another. Now you might get a circumstance where a player has a character in the other game, but they want to join the other group because maybe there's not enough people or something like that, and they jump into this one. And if you're at a different spot, that could be a little bit jarring from a story perspective. Yeah, yeah, I think you'll, I think you'll work that out. I think it'll be okay. So Mark, that would be my recommendation. Ryan says, I have too many monsters running around in books, D&D Beyond, PDFs and monster books and adventures. Do you have any tips on how to keep these organized, especially in a way that is usable as a reference? My lazy approach is usually sorting what I have on D&D Beyond and not taking the time to look at non-Watsy stuff when doing prep. Yes, I've got a couple of thoughts. One is when you're running a campaign, I think it's kind of cool to focus which monsters you're going to pick from 
for that campaign or even that adventure. And then you really only have to look at like one monster, one different monster book for that adventure. So an example was when I ran Rime of the Frostmaiden, they were going down into the ruins of the Netherese, like a Netherese ruin. And I really want to say like the monsters and the creatures and the stuff that they're going to face in this Netherese ruin should be very different than anything they've ever seen in any of the other games that they've run. So I'm like, I'm going to use, I think it was Toma Beast 2, or I think it was the Creature Codex, where I used the Creature Codex at that point to just focus on weird ass monsters that they'd never seen from the creature codex and the plan there and they they were harder in some circumstances and that was really neat so you don't have to use all the monster books you could just pick one and say just for today i'm going to use the, the book of fiends that i that i picked up and i'm or or that that one monster book that i picked up i'm going to just use monsters from that guide so you don't have to have all of your monsters all at once you don't have to like bring them all out in front of you all at once instead you could just for for now like again i ran a city in eberron and i said oh it'd be really cool if there's a lot of different sort of weird construct kind of stuff weird warforged like what if warforged weren't just humanoids what if they were also like big spider beasts or big hulking titan things wouldn't it be neat to see stuff like that and i said what if i grabbed the monsters from arcana of the ancients and beasts of flesh and steel from money cook games and i used those and i did and there was like whoa this is really weird so that 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 is that is definitely focusing on that book is one so now organizing them one don't the, the number one tip i'll give you for organizing your monsters to make them easy to reference is write page numbers down in your notes so when you're doing whatever it is step five where you're planning out what monsters you want and you're looking at your monster books you're planning out your monsters write the name down and put the page number down and then during the game flip to that page Right. It's a very the the page number is a wonderful technology that's been around for thousands of years. It's a really good way to just use it. I kind of quip. One thing I really like for my game table when I'm playing in person is I have those little sticky tabs. I have a bunch of them on hand and I can put a sticky tab for any monster in the book so that I can flip between different monsters very quickly during the game. I'm not a big fan of like printing them out and bringing out your printouts of your monster stat blocks or trying to use a digital tool at the game table. Other people do that and that seems to work fine with them. I like to have physical books. I like to use the physical books and I use bookmarks and page numbers to keep track of it and then in your notes you might have 10 or 12 monsters but everyone has a page number next to it so you know where that you know what book it came from because you put like an abbreviation in the book and then you can put a page number and you know which book and which page number it came from that works well the other the other thing you can do is if you're in digital play in notion so first of all We'll talk about the artisanal monster database in Notion, which doesn't include all the monster books, but includes monsters from a lot of different monster books. And that's one way to organize it, the artisanal monster database. I've talked about that on on other shows before. But you can also write the monster name out in your notes in Notion, create a page for that, and open up the page and do a screenshot of the PDF of a monster. So that way, if you're playing online and you're using Notion for your campaign planning, you can just go right into Notion, open it up, and you have that PDF. That's better than printing out a bunch for your home game. It's a lot easier to screen grab grab the screenshot, drop it into your notes, and then you've got your notes. And if you've seen any of my recent prep videos, you'll see that I've done something like this. That makes it really easy to reference too. But I think number one is the way to not be overwhelmed with the number of monsters you have is focus on which book you want to use at any given time and you switch from time to time. You don't feel like you have to use all of them. Andreas A says, I love your lazy campaign notion template and use it all the time. And now my brother does too, after I recommended it, the latest updates added the creature database. Yes. The artisanal monster database, which says it's still under construction. What are the things you would like to add to it? Just more creatures or also new tags, such as environment, which could be useful to sort these when building an encounter. Thanks so much for your time and work you put into this. So what's he talking about? Let's, let's look at the artisanal database. So in the lazy campaign template, my notion template that I use for campaign planning, you can find a link to it in the show notes below. I added a new feature called the 5e artisanal monster database. The 5e artisanal monster database has 
a set of specific stats, not all of the stats for all these monsters, but but specific stats that are useful for referencing monsters from the 5e SRD, the Level Up Advanced 5e Monstrous Menagerie, and four Cobalt Press books, including Tome of Beast 1, 2, 3, and the Creature Codex. So it's a, I think it's like 2,400 monsters that are in there. And the idea is you can sort on any, search and sort on any of these monsters. If you say, I want to find Dark, you type in Darkul and you get a bunch of different Darkul. Some of them... I think everything except Toma Beasts 3, you have a link that lets you go see the stat block directly using Open 5e. I hope Open 5e stays around. I heard that the guys stopped maintaining it, but boy, it's really nice. Same with if you have you know any of these. So all of the links are either Open 5e or to the level up the A5e tools. So if we do troll, for example, we get a couple of, there's a, there's a 5e SRD troll. This is the troll from the regular 5e SRD, but then there is also the troll from the Monstrous Menagerie, and you can click that and get the Monstrous Menagerie. So that way you have a couple different ones. These are all monsters that are available under, under various system resource documents, and you can sort. So at the top of this, I said, note this database is still under construction. That's what he's talking about. And what am I going to add? So the funny thing is he brought in the, 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 in the was it Andreas? Right. Andreas said, what about environment? I used to have environment. The problem was environment was used very inconsistently among those sources. Not all of them had it. And I think maybe half of them had it and not all of them were using it consistently. And I, I found that it wasn't really that useful. Like it wasn't, it wasn't that useful when it didn't have all of the monsters. So I actually pulled the environment out. I don't plan on adding it back. I know that it would be kind of a useful thing, even if it's only for some of them. The problem is like, it basically means if you're using that, you're going to miss a whole bunch of monsters that could also be applicable to that environment. So I don't know. The answer is, I don't know when it's going to come out of under construction. I'm still toying with it. I'm still adding things to it. I'm still trying to find easier ways to use it. And because I change it regularly, it will break things if people bring it up and then try to add it to their Notion notebook. That can that can end up being kind of a problem. So I would, you know, I mean, use it and try and add it to your campaign. I did a whole video about how to add it. I think I think I did a whole video on one of my previous shows where I talked about how you can add this to your existing template or your existing campaign. But I'm still toying with it. So I don't know that it's going to, that it's not going to change. One thing is Toma Beast 3. There is no reference to Toma Beast 3 yet because it's not available online anywhere yet. So Toma Beast 3 is the one where you cannot find a link and instead you got to open your PDF and drop it in. That is the artisanal database. So it's really useful if you're like, I want to see, you know, and you can do filtering here. So like, I want to find what we're going to do monster type. Let's see, where's type type. And I want to find undead. And you can see like, this is where, I, I, it's got little bugs, right? Because apparently, you know, it's got like these swarms in here that need to be kind of changed. But you could say, I want to find undead. So let's see, where's undead? These aren't even in order. They should be alphabetical. I want to find undead. There's undead isn't under anything else, right? No. And I want to add another filter where we want to make sure we want to find undead creatures where the CR is greater than or equal to three. And where the CR, uh, I guess you, yeah, I got to do more advanced. Let's do advanced, add to advanced filter. And we'll add a new one where CR is less than or equal to six. So now what we have is a list of monsters, undead. And then, oh, I could do, I could do another filter and say, I only want to see ones or source where I want to, I only want to see the ones that are in the monsters menagerie the level up 5e advanced menagerie and now you've got this set of monsters that are see but this is little errors like this let's fix this guy right now 
I don't know why. Ogre Flesh Heap. Ew. Let's take a look at that guy. Flesh Heap Ogre. Nasty. Is that in the... Yeah, that's in the Monstrous Menagerie. Cool. Right? So that is a way that you can kind of filter down and use this list to get monsters from a bunch of different sources. I find it more valuable than D&D Beyond because it includes monsters from all of these different sources in it. You can see all the filtering you can do and it's all built into Notion. So that's what we're talking about. The question is, what other features? I don't know. Mostly cleanup. I think I think most of it is cleanup. But really, like, I'm still toying with it to see what we're going to do with it. So yeah, it's a very cool feature. Again, it's in the Lazy Campaign Notebook. You can find that in the, in the notes below. Dalzin says, what third-party content resources would you recommend for world-building basics? I've just finished running Icewind Dale, and I want to start designing my own campaign. Any advice is greatly appreciated. Down in the show notes, you'll find a link to Kobold Press's guides. These are all guides to kind of help DMs and designers learn more about this process. And there are two guides to world building the Kobold guide to world building volume one and volume two but all of these guides are actually pretty good the guide to game design guide to monsters plots and campaigns game mastering and what these guides are are sets of essays where's the other world building guide yeah here's the first original guide to world building so there's two different guides to world building you can pick up the pdfs and they're essays. These are all books of essays written from designers, veteran designers, new designers, lots of different people thinking about this that have been put together in a group that give you ideas about different parts that you're going to build. They, they aren't a complete like instruction for how to build your own world. I think there are such guides like that, but none of them leap right out at me that I've, that I've looked at. So if you're looking for inspiration, if you're looking for thoughts about like how to build magic systems and how to think about religion and how to build geography, and you want it from a bunch of different veteran designers and role playing. These are the, definitely the books, the books that I would that I would pick up. If anybody else has thoughts about really good books about world building that you want to share, I would definitely leave a leave a note in the leave, leave a note in the comments. But I do find these guides, they're, they're very entertaining to read. You get a lot of information. They are really like blog articles from some of the top designers in the industry. So I would you know, start with World Building Guide Volume 2, but you can also get the World Building Guide Volume 1, Game Design, Monsters, Game Mastering, Plots and Campaigns, all of these have lots of good essays you could read You could read for a long time. So those are the ones that I would, rec- that I would recommend. Again, you can find a link down in the show notes below. Tatum V says, what do you do for reference rules and materials when playing obscure TTRPGs? Though I am a collector, I don't expect my players to go all out and buy source books, but I do like, but I, I also don't want to feel like it's right for me to freely distribute the paid pdf version i have because i feel that's unfair to the creator i know what happens but i'm trying to do my part one of the benefits of dnd 5e is its proliferation most people have a player's handbook and access to dnd beyond for other systems i find that without being able to hand the player something to take home and read they don't get the same grasp of the game back in the day we just photocopy relevant pages and give them to the players for reference this is certainly an option and not too much better than handing out a pdf but i don't know i didn't know if you had a more modern take i do i have a solution to this problem First of all, we were just talking about it. That idea that like a a very valuable thing that a publisher can do is put out a player's guide that's either very cheap or free. So you can just give it to people and the DM can buy a bunch. I actually went and bought extra copies myself of the PDF versions of uh, the Midgard Heroes Handbook and of Tome of Heroes just so I could like lend a PDF out and, and, and and I paid for it. 
But a really powerful feature is Google Drive. So if you use in, in Google Drive, you can share a document, but you can limit the reader's ability to download or print it. This is a there's a link to Google to instructions from Google about how to do this. I will link to this in the show notes below. I also want to do a video to walk through step by step how to do this. I can't do it right now live because I might show things I don't want to show. So instead, I'm going to do a separate video where I can do it and I will I will show exactly how to do this. But the idea is you can basically take any of the PDFs that you want to share. You can put them in a folder up on your own Google Drive, free to, free to set up a Google Drive. And then you can right click on any of them and go down to the advanced se section of them. And you can share them with your specific players. But then you can say that you're going to disable, you go in and you disable the option to download and print or copy for those. So instead of being able to edit and view, you can actually add extra restrictions to it that say they can view it, but they can't download it and they can't copy it. And you would still limit specifically who you don't make it open and available to everybody in the internet that wouldn't be great either but you can say to your players they're going to get an, an account and they can log in and then they have a basically a way to view the pdf themselves online and you know that they're not going to be able to download it it's not going to float out there with your with your id on the bottom and stuff like that so it's a really good way to share pdfs of stuff with your players whatever system you're using and it's legal it's legal to do so as far as i as far as i know i've never heard i've never seen or heard anything that says it's not illegal it's actually the same way that you're able to share pdfs on roll 20 from drive through rpg so i presume if they're willing to do it there's no reason you shouldn't be willing to do it i've certainly heard no publisher that had any problem with this because they're only able to see it they can't download it you can always turn off the permissions too but it's a great way to to, to view a pdf so i will link down to this this these instructions down in the show notes below the thing you're looking for is the way to limit printing copying and downloading files in Google Drive so that people can view it, but they can't do any of those things. And you're going to want to experiment, like find one person, experiment, make sure that they're only seeing the permissions that they're seeing. It took me a couple of goes to get it right. But once I got it right, I was able to do it with all the people in my game and I was able to share these documents so they could get access to them as long as we were in that campaign without having to buy them themselves. It was a really, really good solution. So one that I highly recommend. Mark H says, what tips do you have for running D&D &D or a stripped down version of D&D one-on-one for a five year old i actually managed to run a DD like game uh for a three-year-old and a five-year-old and their and and their parent and my wife and i i don't i think it was i think that was it i don't think we had anybody else and obviously you have to make major changes to the story and the kind of things that they're going to do and what we did is we used fate so we used we used fate accelerated they built their characters in fate accelerated they used fate dice so they had to count up the pluses and minuses and blanks and that was easier to do than a d20 i don't think 5 year olds can easily do math on a d20 you can always convert the d20 to a d6 and then change like what the DC is that the, 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 you know, a D 20, instead of the average being 10, a D six, the average is like three or four. And then you just roll a D six, add the modifier. And that can teach them some basic math. You can just use the base stats. So there's definitely stripped down things that you can do that you can use. You could take a look at dungeons of fate, which is my fate version, my, my D and D clone that uses fate rules. But I think fate accelerated itself is probably a little bit easier 
you know, you, you really want to strip things down, really get it to brass tacks. There's a couple of other games you might want to look at. RPG Kids by my friend Newbie DM was very popular. I think it's still around on Drive-Thru RPG. That was used for very, very young children. And No Thank You Evil from Monty Cook Games is also another system that's that's designed for that's designed for children of 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 very young children. So those would be ones that I have seen myself and tried. I'm hearing Magical Kitties Save the Day is another D6, another D6 system that is done by Justin Alexander. I have not tried that one. I'm seeing that one pop up in the Twitch chat here. So those might be a few different examples of games. I will link to all of these down in the show notes below, but that is probably what I would do. I had done it. My favorite was the three-year-old wanted to be the Hulk. So he made a character that was based on the Hulk, but then ran away from everything. And we had to keep saying like, would the Hulk run away from this? And he's like, I'm not going in that room. And I'm like, but you're the Hulk. And he's like, all right. It was very funny. Like he had to teach him how to role play the Hulk. It was really fun. Jason says, I'm a reincarnated 2EDM. Yes, it's been a while. And I'm now running a game for my family who are brand new to the genre. We have, we're having a lot of fun, but their basic battle tactics are really poor and starting to cause issues, splitting the party, not focusing attacks, not utilizing all the resources, not using them effectively. I'm struggling on how to address this. Do I have a timeout session and walk them through some examples? Any other ideas or resources I can lean on? Number one is make sure that they're, that the kind of game, see if they're having fun. Like, are they enjoying the game the way that they're doing it? They might learn about splitting the party as they do it. They might pick up some of this stuff. Now, you know, we, we can refer to kind of like casual players, players that have not really, like they're, they've not been doing this forever. They don't really understand everything goes. And you can certainly help them out. I'm always a believer in having clear conversations with people about, about the game. First of all, you could do some out of game stuff, but you want to be gentle with it because you don't want to guide them to only run the kind of game you want to run. If their tactics aren't great, that's okay. They don't, their tactics don't have to be great. You know, maybe the monsters don't have great tactics either. I run the terrible tactics for monsters. So it could be that it's a mismatch in the style of the game you're used to running and the kind of game that they kind of want to play. And that could be different. And, And it's worth recognizing that, but maybe try to run the game the way that they're playing it. Now, if they are making decisions that are bad for their characters, you might say your character knows, or you being an experienced adventure tells you it might be very dangerous for you to do this thing. Are you sure you want to do that? It's okay to guide people because again, players are only understanding about half of what we're giving them. And the adventurers are the ones that are actually there risking their lives, not the players. So talk, talk to the adventurers and explain to the players what the adventurers are seeing can be a really important thing. But, I, you know, I would not be hard about it. I would not punish them for their poor choices. I would not set up situations that show them, you know, that's what you get for splitting the party. Because, like, you're not trying to get... And you don't want to... You don't want to break them away from the game, right? You don't You don't want them to... You, you don't want to... You don't want them not like it. So instead, I think there are, there are ways to kind of make it clear to them. And, and I'm a big fan of like explaining again what, they're, what, the, what the characters know, right? So, so yeah, I, I think those are, those are some suggestions I would have. But also just you know, think about the kind of game that you're used to running and that the game they want to play might not be that game and that maybe changing the style a little bit. I'm a pretty loosey-goosey DM. I let players get away with a lot of stuff because we're all having fun. And that's what's more important is having fun. Sometimes they do something and they get electrocuted, right? It happens. Like sometimes they go up to the door that's got a big hammer with thunderbolts and they're like, I push it open. And I'm like, you are electrocuted, right? So definitely you can have things like that, but it's all in good fun, right? And you don't, you don't, you don't want to punish them because they made these like, oh, you, there was a good choice and you should have taken that and you didn't. So now I'm going to 
stick it to you. I would worry about that. So Jason, I hope I hope that helps. Friends, I want to thank all of you for hanging out with me today while we enjoyed talking about role-playing games. If you like this show and you want more stuff like this, I suggest you subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. There is a link to this in the show notes below. Subscribing to the newsletter gets you a free Adventure Generator PDF sent directly, plus you'll get a weekly RPG-related article sent directly to your inbox with all kinds of links to other things that I have made throughout the week. You can also jump right on the Sly Flourish Patreon. Patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive features like the, the Sly Flourish Discord server. They get access to the City of Arches source book, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, a bunch of exclusive adventures, all different kinds of things, and the monthly Q&A. You can also pick up any of my books at the Sly Flourish bookstore. You can pick up Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, the Lazy DM's workbook, and the Lazy DM's companion, all available in beautiful offset printing. All of the links to all of those are in the show notes below. Thank you all very much. Have a great day and get out there and play an RPG.